Good evening, ladies and no, let's do this at the same time. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You just have to say it along with me. I'm David Reinstrom. And I'm David Burnell Brutman. We're waiting on Alex Jensen, but she'll be here in a minute. She's attending to John McCain's makeup. Welcome to the KWUR Theater of the Air. Welcome indeed. I think we were doing pretty well there, though, for, yeah. for saying things at the same time. Well, you, you gave up. Uh, well, I mean, for a little bit, is what I mean. You threw up that white flag of surrender. I guess I did. But but we don't want to be looking backwards and pointing at our mistakes. No, we don't. Now that the debates Certainly are over, not. I can be uh, baldly political and biased. But um, I wanted to tell everyone that they should be terribly excited because the debates, the second uh, string of debates between... Senator Barack Obama and Senator John McCain are tonight in an hour. Yes, in so Tennessee. As soon as you finish listening to this radio broadcast, tune in to Debate Central. Or if you're not interested, then you should listen to Jew versus Gentile, which comes on after us. Uh, okay. I think that's only fair. Fair. Plug for, you know, electoral politics or plug for Jew versus Gentile. I think it's absolutely fair. Okay, well, maybe we can have a debate about whether you should tune into the next show after you know ours what? You know or what? the Do presidential both. debate. Do both simultaneously. Oh, my goodness. You could get get some headphones, and uh, in into the right ear, you're going to pump Jew versus Gentile, the, yes. the show after ours, and into your left ear, you are going to pump the presidential debate. I'd like to see a mashup it's of that. It's brilliant. Look, look, Senator McCain, I, I, I'd like to point out, that the next track you're going to hear is going to be completely off the hook. Uh, it comes from CSS, that, that band out of Brazil. It's Trip Hop. Uh, my, my, my wife, Michelle, my daughters, Sasha and Malia, enjoy it a great deal. How's my Obama impression? Is it getting better? It's getting better. Okay, it's I'm getting better. So this let's, week... Let's begin. Let's begin. This week, we're doing audiobooks here on K-Worth Theater of the Air. woo And for our first selection, we've got the... Hilarious David Sedaris with uh, selections. I don't know what book this actually comes from. This is actually from uh, an album recorded live at Carnegie Hall. So it's so it's just him doing readings, right? It's him doing readings of various segments, various stories from a a performance at Carnegie Hall. And the story that we are going to hear is called "Repeat After Me." So David Sedaris, "Repeat After Me." I was going to start with the story called Repeat After Me. Although we discussed my upcoming visit to Winston-Salem, my sister and I didn't make exact arrangements until the eve of my arrival when I phoned from a hotel in Salt Lake City. I'll be at work when you arrive, she said, so I'm thinking I'll just leave the key under the hour ot near the ack door. <laughs> the what? Our art. I thought she maybe had something in her mouth until I realized she was speaking in code. <laughs> what do you want, a speakerphone at a methadone clinic? <laughs> Why can't you just tell me where you put the goddamn house key? Her voice dropped to a whisper. I just don't know that I trust these things. Are you on a cell phone? Of course not, she said. This is just a regular cordless, but still you have to be... Full. <laughs> when I suggested that actually she didn't have to be careful, Lisa resumed her normal tone of voice, saying, Really? But I heard... My sister's a type who religiously watches the fear segments of her local eyewitness news broadcasts, <laughs> retaining nothing but the headline. She remembers that applesauce can kill you, but forgets that in order to die, you have to inject it directly into your bloodstream. <laughs> Announcements that cell phone conversations may be picked up by strangers, mixed with the reported rise of both home burglaries and brain tumors, meaning that as far as she's concerned, all telecommunication is potentially life-threatening. If she didn't watch it on the news, she read it in Consumer Reports or heard it third-hand from a friend of a friend of a friend whose ear caught fire while dialing her answering machine. Everything is dangerous all of the time, and if it's not yet been pulled off the shelf, then it's certainly under investigation, so there. Okay, I said, but can you tell me which hour, Ot? Last time I was there, you had quite a few of them. 
It's Ed, she told me. (laughs) Well, Ed-ish. I arrived at Lisa's house late the following afternoon, found the key beneath the flower pot, and let myself in through the back door. A lengthy note on the coffee table explained how I might go about operating everything from the television to the waffle iron. Each carefully detailed procedure ending with the line, Remember to unplug, turn off, and unplug after use. At the bottom of page three, a postscript informed me that if the appliance in question had no plug, the dishwasher, for instance, I should make sure it had completed its cycle and was cool to the touch before leaving the room. (laughs) The note reflected a growing hysteria, its subtext shrieking, oh my God, he's going to be alone in my house for close to an hour. She left her work number, her husband's work number, and the number of the next-door neighbor, explaining that she didn't know the woman very well, so I probably shouldn't bother her unless it was an emergency. P.P.S. She's a Baptist, so don't tell her you're gay. (laughs) The last time I was alone at my sister's place, she was living in a white brick apartment complex occupied by widows and single, middle-aged working women. This was in the late 1970s when we were supposed to be living in dorms. College hadn't quite worked out the way she'd expected, and after two years in Virginia, she'd be turned to Raleigh and taken a job at a wine shop. It was a normal enough life for a 21-year-old, but being a dropout was not what she had planned for herself. Worse than that, it had not been planned for her. As children, we'd been assigned certain roles, leader, bum, troublemaker, slut, titles that effectively told us who we were. As the oldest, smartest, and bossiest, it was naturally assumed that Lisa would shoot to the top of her field, earning a master's degree in manipulation, and eventually taking over a medium-sized country. We'd always known her as an authority figure, and while we took a certain joy in watching her fall, it was disorienting to see her with so little confidence. Suddenly, she was relying on other people's opinions, following their advice and withering at the slightest criticism. Do you really think so? Really? She was putty. (laughs) My sister needed patience and understanding, but more often than not, I found myself wanting to shake her. If the oldest wasn't who she was supposed to be, then what did it mean for the rest of us? Lisa had been marked most likely to succeed, and so it confused her to be ringing up gallon jugs of hearty burgundy. (laughs) I had been branded as lazy and irresponsible, and so it felt right when I, too, dropped out of college (laughs) and wound up living back in Raleigh. After being thrown out of my parents' house, I went to live with Lisa in her white brick complex. It was a small studio apartment, the adult version of her childhood bedroom, And when I eventually left her with a broken stereo and an unpaid $80 phone bill, the general consensus was, well, what did you expect? I might reinvent myself to strangers, but to this day, as far as my family is concerned, I'm still the one most likely to set your house on fire. (laughs) While I accepted my lowered expectations, Lisa fought hard to regain her former title. The wine shop was just a temporary setback, and she left shortly after becoming the manager. Photography interested her, and so she taught herself to use a camera, ultimately landing a job in the photo department of a large international drug company where she took pictures of germs, viruses, and people reacting to germs and viruses. (laughs) On weekends, for extra money, she photographed weddings, which really weren't that much of a stretch. She got married herself and then quit the drug company in order to earn an English degree. When told there was very little call for 30-page essays on Jane Austen, she got a real estate license. When told the housing market was down, she returned to school to study plants. Her husband, Bob, got a new job in Winston-Salem, and so they moved, buying a new three-story home in a quiet suburban neighborhood. It was strange to think of my sister living in such a grown-up place, and I was relieved to find that neither she nor Bob particularly cared for it. 
The town was nice enough, but the house itself had a way of aging things. Stand outside and you looked, if not young, then at least relatively carefree. Step indoors and you automatically put on 20 years and a 401k plan. <laughs> my sister's home didn't really lend itself to snooping, and so I spent my hour in the kitchen making small talk with Henry. It was the same conversation we'd had the last time I saw him, yet still I found it fascinating. He asked how I was doing. I said I was all right. And then, as if something might have drastically changed over the last few seconds, he asked again. <laughs> of all the elements of my sister's adult life, the house, the husband, the sudden interest in plants, the most unsettling is Henry. Technically, he's a blue-fronted Amazon, but to the average layman, he's just a big parrot, <laughs> the type you might see on the shoulder of a pirate. <laughs> How you doing? The third time he asked, it sounded as if he really cared. <laughs> I approached his cage with a detailed answer, and when he lunged for the bars, I screamed like a girl and ran out of the room. Henry likes you, my sister said a short while later. She just returned from her job at the plant nursery and was sitting at the table, unlacing her sneakers. See the way he's fanning his tail? He'd never do that for Bob, would you, Henry? Bob had returned from work a few minutes earlier and immediately headed upstairs to spend time with his own bird, a balding, green-cheeked conure named Jose. I thought the two of them might enjoy an occasional conversation, but it turns out they can't stand one another. <laughs> Don't even mention Jose in front of Henry, Lisa said. <laughs> Bob's bird squawked from the upstairs study, and the parrot responded with a series of high, piercing barks. It was a trick he'd picked up from Lisa's border collie, Chessie, and what was disturbing was that he sounded exactly like a dog, <laughs> just as when speaking English, he sounded exactly like Lisa. It was creepy to hear my sister's voice coming from a beak. <laughs> but I couldn't say it didn't please me. <laughs> Who's hungry, she asked. Who's hungry, the voice repeated. <laughs> I raised my hand and she offered Henry a peanut. <laughs> Taking it in his claw, his belly sagging almost to the perch, I could understand what someone might see in a parrot. Here was this strange little fat man living in my sister's kitchen. <laughs> a sympathetic listener turning again and again to ask, So really, how are you? <laughs> I'd asked her the same question and she'd said, Oh, fine, you know. She's afraid to tell me anything important, knowing I'll only turn around and write about it. In my mind, I'm like a friendly junk man, building things from the little pieces of scrap I find here and there. But my family started to see things differently. Their personal lives are the so-called pieces of scrap I so casually pick up. And they're sick of it. Conversations now start with the words, you have to swear you will never repeat this. I always promise, but it's generally understood that my word is no better than Henry's. <laughs> I'd gone to Winston-Salem to address the students at a local college, and then again to break some news. Sometimes, when you're stoned, it's fun to sit around and think of who might play you in the movie version of your life. <laughs> what makes it fun is that no one is actually going to make a movie of your life. Lisa and I no longer get stoned, and so it was all the harder to announce that my book had been optioned, meaning that, in fact, someone was going to make a movie of our lives. <laughs> Not a student, but a real live director people had heard of. A what? I explained that he was Chinese, and she asked if the movie would be in Chinese. No, I said, he lives in America, in California. He's been here since he was a baby. Then what does it matter if he's Chinese? <laughs> well, I said, he's got, you know, a sensibility. Oh, brother, she said. I looked to Henry for support. 
and he growled at me. So now we have to be in a movie? She picked her sneakers off the floor and tossed them into the laundry room. Well, she said, I can tell you right now that you are not dragging my bird into this. The movie was to be based on our pre-parrot years, but the moment she put her foot down, I started wondering who we might get to play the role of Henry. (laughs) I know what you're thinking, she said, and the answer is no. Once, at a dinner party, I met a woman whose parrot had learned to imitate the automatic ice maker on her new refrigerator. (laughs) That's what happens when they're left alone, she'd said. It was the most depressing bit of information I'd heard in quite a while. (laughs) And it stuck with me for weeks. Here was this creature, born to mock its jungle neighbors, and it wound up doing impressions of man-made kitchen appliances. (laughs) I repeated the story to Lisa, who told me that neglect had nothing to do with it. She then prepared a cappuccino, setting the stage for Henry's pitch-perfect imitation of the milk steamer. He can do the blender, too, she said. (laughs) She opened the cage door, and as we sat down to our coffees, Henry glided down onto the table. Who wants a kiss? She stuck out her tongue, and he accepted the tip gingerly between his upper and lower beak. I'd never dream of doing such a thing. (laughs) Not because it's across the board disgusting, (laughs) but because he would have bitten the shit out of me. While Henry might occasionally have fanned his tail in my direction, it was understood that he was loyal to only one person, which, I think, is another reason my sister was so fond of him. Was that a good kiss, she asked. Did you like that? I expected a yes or no answer and was disappointed when he responded with the exact same question. Did you like that? (laughs) Yes, parrots can talk, but unfortunately they have no idea what they're actually saying. When she first got him, Henry spoke the Spanish he'd learned from his captors. Asked if he'd had a good night's sleep, he'd say simply, hola, or bueno. (laughs) He goes through phases, favoring an often repeated noise or sentence, and then moving on to something else. When our mother died, Henry learned how to cry. He and Lisa would set each other off, and the two of them would go on for hours. (laughs) A few years later, in the midst of a brief academic setback, she trained him to act as her emotional cheerleader. I'd call and hear him in the background screaming, We love you, Lisa! (laughs) And you can do it! (laughs) This was replaced, in time, with the far more practical, Where are my keys? After finishing our coffees, Lisa drove me to Greensboro, where I delivered my scheduled lecture. This is to say that I read stories about my family. (laughs) After the reading, I answered questions about them, thinking all the while how odd it was that these strangers seemed to know so much about my brother and sisters. (laughs) In order to sleep at night, I have to remove myself from the equation, pretending that the people I love voluntarily chose to expose themselves. Amy breaks up with a boyfriend and sends out a press release. Paul regularly discusses his bowel movements on daytime talk shows. I'm not the conduit, but just a poor typist stuck in the middle. It's an illusion much harder to maintain when a family member is actually in the audience. All right, we will be back with more David Sedaris a little later on in the program. You are listening to K-Worth Theater of the Air here on KWUR 90.3 FM, Clayton. Uh, I, I believe we're going to have a short break at this point. You guys, are you, you're just kind of looking at me. I, I don't know. No, now we are going to have a short public service announcement. Okay. Yes. Hello. <clears throat> Every day we count on things like the traffic light, 
the mailbox, and the elevator. But did you know all these things came from the minds of African Americans? Support minority education today, so we don't miss out on the next big idea tomorrow. The United Negro College Fund. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. To support the United Negro College Fund, please visit uncf.org or call 1-800-332-UNCF. Brought to you by UNCF and the Ad Council. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Aperture science. We do what we must because we can. For the good of all of us, except the ones who are dead. But there's no sense crying over every mistake. You just keep on trying till you run out of cake. And the science gets done, and you make a neat gun for the people who are still alive. I'm not even angry. I'm being so sincere. listening to the K-Word Theater of the Air here on KWUR Clayton 90.3 FM. You can listen online at www.kwer.com. Alex, we didn't we didn't say hello to you before. You read that PSA and now you're here. Hello. Hi. Hi. Welcome back. You, you seem contrite for your uh, tardiness. Oh, uh, I'm I'm sorry. No, I, I understand. I, I really am. I, I had to do uh, John McCain's makeup. Yeah, for the debate. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he called me up and asked me to... Alex! Yeah? Alex! Yeah? I need you to do my makeup for the debate tonight. Oh, okay, Johnny. Well, uh, I'll uh, I'll get right on that. I'll get a big old puff ball full of powder okay. and put it on your shiny head. So- sounds great. Yeah. All right, see you in Tennessee. Okay, sounds pretty good. He Was that how it went? That is exactly how it went. Yeah, he responds better uh, when... People speak in a Sarah Palin voice. Yes, he he does. It's it's like you know you you get a puppy and and you put well, a clock by its heart. T- talks it's to him like that, that way. Sarah Palin doesn't actually talk that way. Um, this was something that John McCain's uh, therapist figured out that this was just the best way to approach him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and therefore, the American people, as John McCain is is severely in touch with the pulse right. of the American populace. So before we took a break, we were listening to David Sedaris reading a story called Repeat After Me, and we're going to go right back to that and listen to the third part, 
I was going to say installment, but it's not an installment. It's a part. <laughs> so we're going to go back and listen to the third part of that story. Fantastic. David Sedaris, once again, with Repeat After Me. The day after the reading, Lisa called in sick, and we spent the afternoon running errands. Winston-Salem is a city of plazas, mid-sized shopping centers, each built around an enormous grocery store. I was looking for cheap cartons of cigarettes, and so we drove from plaza to plaza, comparing prices and talking about our sister Gretchen. A year earlier, she'd bought a pair of flesh-eating Chinese box turtles with pointed noses and spooky, translucent skin. The two of them lived in an outdoor pen and were relatively happy until raccoons dug beneath the wire, chewing the front legs off the female and the rear legs off her husband. I may have the order wrong, Lisa said, but you get the picture. The couple survived the attack and continued to track the live mice that constituted their diet, propelling themselves forward like a pair of half-stripped Volkswagens. The sad part is that it took her two weeks to notice it, Lisa said. (laughs) Two weeks. She shook her head and drove past our exit. I'm sorry, but I don't know how a responsible pet owner could go that long without noticing a thing like that. It's just not right. According to Gretchen, the turtles had no memories of their former limbs. But Lisa wasn't buying it. Oh, come on, she said. They must at least have phantom pains. I mean, how can a living creature not mind losing its legs? If anything like that happened to Chessie, I honestly don't know how I could live with myself. Her eyes misted and she wiped them with the back of her hand. My little collie gets a tick and I go crazy. Lisa's a person who once witnessed a car accident saying, I just hope there isn't a dog in the back seat. (laughs) Human suffering doesn't faze her much, but she'll cry for days over a sick pet story. Did you see that movie about the Cuban guy, she asked? It played here for a while, but I wouldn't go. Someone told me a dog gets killed in the first 15 minutes. So I said, forget it. I reminded her that the main character died as well, horribly, of AIDS. And she pulled into the parking lot saying, well, I just hope it wasn't a real dog. (laughs) I wound up buying cigarettes at Tobacco USA, a discount store with the name of a theme park. Lisa had officially quit smoking 10 years earlier, and might have taken it up again were it not for Chessie, who, according to the vet, was predisposed towards lung ailments. I don't want to give her secondhand emphysema, but I sure wouldn't mind taking some of this weight off. Tell me the truth. Do I look fat to you? (laughs) Not at all. She turned sideways and examined herself in the front window of Tobacco USA. You're lying. Well, isn't that what you want me to say? Yeah, she said, but I want you to really mean it. But I had meant it. It wasn't the weight I noticed so much as the clothing she wore to cover it up. The loose, baggy pants and oversized shirts falling halfway to her knees. This was a look she'd adopted a few months earlier, after she and her husband had gone to the mountains to visit Bob's parents. Lisa had been sitting beside the fire, and when she scooted her chair towards the center of the room, her father-in-law said, "'What's the matter, Lisa? Getting too fat?' I mean, hot. (laughs) Getting too hot? He tried to cover his mistake, but it was too late. (laughs) The word had already been seared into my sister's brain. Will I have to be fat in the movie, she asked. Of course not, I said. You'll be just just like you are. Like I am according to who, she asked. The Chinese? (laughs) Well, not all of them, I said. Just one. She tugged at the hem of her shirt and asked how much I thought he weighed. 
In truth, he was half her size, but I lied, giving him an extra hundred pounds. Normally, if at home during a weekday, Lisa likes to read 18th century novels, breaking at one to eat lunch and watch a television program called Matlock. (laughs) By the time we finished with my errands, the day's broadcast had already ended, and so we decided to go to the movies, whatever she wanted. She chose the story of a young Englishwoman struggling to remain happy while trying to lose a few extra pounds. (laughs) But in the end, she got her plazas confused, and we arrived at the wrong theater just in time to watch You Can Count on Me the Kenny Lonergan movie in which an errant brother visits his older sister. (laughs) Normally, Lisa's the type who talks from one end of the picture to the other. A character will spread mayonnaise onto a chicken sandwich and she'll lean over, whispering, One time? (laughs) One time I was doing that? And the knife fell into the toilet... Then she'll settle back in her seat and I'll spend the next ten minutes wondering why on earth someone would make a chicken sandwich in the bathroom. (laughs) This movie reflected our lives so eerily that for the first time in recent memory she was stunned into silence. There was no physical resemblance between us and the main characters. The brother and sister were younger and orphaned. But like us, they'd stumbled to adulthood, playing the worn, confining roles assigned to them as children. Every now and then, one of them would break free, but for the most part, they behaved not like they wanted to, but as they were expected to. In brief, a guy shows up at his sister's house and stays for a few weeks until she kicks him out. She's not evil about it, but having him around forces her to think about things she'd rather not, which is essentially what family members do. At least the family members my sister and I know. On leaving the theater, we shared a long, uncomfortable silence. Between the movie we'd just seen and the movie about to be made, we both felt awkward and self-conscious, as if we were auditioning for the roles of ourselves. I started in with some benign bit of gossip I'd heard concerning the man who played the part of the brother, but stopped after the first few minutes, saying that, on second thought, It really wasn't very interesting. She couldn't think of anything either, and so we said nothing, each of us imagining a bored audience shifting in their seats. We stopped for gas on the way home, and we're parking in front of her house when she turned to relate what I've come to think of as the quintessential Lisa story. One time, she said. (laughs) One time I was out driving. The incident began with a quick trip to the grocery store and ended, unexpectedly, with a wounded animal stuffed into a pillowcase and held to the tailpipe of her car. Like most of my sister's stories, it provoked a startling mental picture, (laughs) capturing a moment in time when one's actions seemed both unimaginably cruel and completely natural. Details were carefully chosen and the pace built gradually punctuated by a series of well-timed pauses. And then, and then. She reached the inevitable conclusion, and just as I started to laugh, she put her head against the steering wheel and fell apart. It wasn't the gentle flow of tears you might release when recalling an isolated action or event, but the violent explosion that comes when you realize that all such events are connected, forming an endless chain of guilt and suffering. I instinctively reach for the notebook I keep in my pocket. (laughs) And she grabbed my hand to stop me. If you ever, she said, ever repeat that story, I will never talk to you again. In the movie version of our lives, I would have turned to offer her comfort, reminding her, convincing her that the actions she described had been kind and just because it was. She's incapable of acting otherwise. In the real version of our lives, my immediate goal was simply to change her mind. Oh, come on, I said. That story's really funny, and I mean, it's not like you're going to do anything with it. (laughs) 
your life, your privacy, your bottomless sorrow. It's not like you're going to do anything with it. Is this the brother I always was or the brother I have become? I'd worried that in making the movie, the director might get me and my family wrong. But now a worse thought occurred to me. What if he got us right? <laughs> Dusk. The camera pans an unremarkable suburban street, moving in on a parked four-door automobile where a small, evil man turns to his sobbing sister, <laughs> saying, what if I use a story but say that it happened to a friend? But maybe that's not the end. Maybe before the credits roll, we see this same man getting out of bed in the middle of the night, walking past his sister's bedroom and downstairs into the kitchen. A switch is thrown, and we notice, in the far corner of the room, a large standing birdcage covered with a tablecloth. He approaches it carefully and removes the cover, waking a blue-fronted Amazon parrot, its eyes glowing red in the sudden light. Through everything that's come before this moment, we understand that the man has something important to say. From his own mouth, the words are meaningless, and so he pulls up a chair. The clock reads 3 a.m., then 4, then 5, as he sits before the brilliant bird, repeating slowly and clearly the words, Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Yeah! Oh man, I wish everything. Oh, oh, oh! I wish everything I did had that much applause. And I'm gonna eat a sandwich now. Oh, oh, we're out of applause. <laughs> Sorry, David. <laughs> Trad, There's always, a limited supply of applause like on this show. That was David Sedaris, and this is Kaywer Theater of the Air. What a wow! Here on ninety point three FM. Zap out the fatteners. What a wow! Six day plan. Um, yes, you're listening to the K-Word Theater of the Air here on KWR 90.3 FM, Clayton. And you can check out our website, our newly furbished website at... David? <laughs> at uh, com. Check it out. That's we're going to take a short break. Now we're going to play a song, and then when we come back, we're going to have more delightful content. But I wanted to throw out a call-in option for tonight. You mm. may call us at 314-935-5987, if you so desire, and tell us what you think is going to happen in the debate tonight. Uh. That's what you should do. I wanna ask you, do you ever sit and wonder it's so strange we could be together for so long and never know, never care what goes on in the other one's head? Things I felt but I never said, you said things that I never said, so I'll say something that I should have said long ago. Like a mannequin Or a cardboard Stand up and paint me Made a face that you wanted me to Be seen We're down by the existential moment Where we saw the couple in the coma And it was we were the cliche But we carried on anyway So sure I could just close my eyes Yeah sure Trace and memorize But can you go back once no.
So what I'm trying to say is what what I'm trying to tell you is not gonna come out like I want to say it cuz I know you'll only change it Say it You don't know me You don't know me at all You don't know me Welcome back. You are listening to KWR Clayton, 90.3 FM, and this is the K-Word Theater of the Air. Oh, Alex, your voice is like unto silk. Is it like butter? Like butter. Ugh, like butter. Like oh, two God. sticks of butter lashed together in a rough-hewn manner. That's what I've Ugh. heard. I heard that my voice was kind of like butter. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, we were talking before about the website. What? Um, and what? I have an update for you. The, <laughs> the podcast is available on iTunes. It is now iTunes searchable. It is iTunes searchable. So, um, you know, go into your computers, go on the interwebs, uh, connect to the interwebs, go to iTunes, and uh, search for the KWR Radio Theater of the Air. Or search for any of our names. That should work too, right, David? Yes, you can search for any of our names. You can search for KWR. You can search for... Uh, radio theater I or mean, awesomeness. Or if awesomeness. you type in awesomeness, it'll bring up, um, you know, our our stuff. So um, uh, do that. If you search for I, the I, next I'm actually pretty sure of the United States of America, it'll also. <laughs> that's a lie. I'm pretty sure those last two won't work. But Dave, any Alex, of the you guys previous want to be oligarch? ones, you want to run for oligarch? Uh, I'm so there. 2012. Yeah, it's, it sounds kind of dirty. DDA oligarchs. I'm there. 2012. Why don't we listen to more audiobooks instead? Okay. Yeah. What do you got? Well, next up, I've got uh, Jonathan Hodgman. Jonathan Hodgman? Yes, Jonathan Hodgman. Uh, you may have seen him on The Daily Show. He's the PC in the Mac PC commercials. And he wrote a book called The Areas of My Expertise, which hmm. is an almanac. Uh, the only difference from traditional almanacs being that... It is entirely made up. It contains no factual information whatsoever, which in some ways makes it superior to other almanacs. I agree. Like hmm. the 700 hobo names and the phases of the moon and how they affect werewolves in different continents. Exactly. It has charts and tables for, for all of these things and many other useful facts that you did not know. Available at bookstores near you. Probably, I believe he's. Uh, I'll do a. I'll do a quick search while we're playing this. But I believe he's coming out with a sequel to that. Awesome. So this segment that we're going to play is called the Mall of America, and it is about Jonathan Hodgman's harrowing trip to that dark place. Secrets of the Mall of America. Now, when I stopped being a professional literary agent, I, of course, had to contrive some way for me to eat and drink at the finest restaurants without paying for anything. And so I became a columnist for a national magazine of men's fitness and adventure in which I wrote about food, drink, and cheese, which is a kind of food. You may recall my work. My first column was on the subject of the care and feeding of great abs. Excuse me, awesome abs. My second column was on the subject of hunting and cooking your own polar bear steaks. My third column was on the subject of the world's greatest chili recipe ever. My fourth column uh, was also on chili. And my fifth column was on the subject of hunting and cooking your own polar bear steaks. The problem is that there are only so many foods in the world to write about. I believe it was Julia Child who wrote in Mastering the Art of French Cooking, quote, here are the things you can write about. Abs, polar bear steaks, chili, chili, and polar bear steaks in that order, end quote. She was an amazing woman. I did once write a column on a different subject, but my magazine never ran it. It was on ultra-hot hot sauces. Now, by this I should say that I mean very spicy hot sauces and not boiling hot hot sauces, an important distinction of the kind a professional food journalist sometimes has to make. 
An example of an ultra-hot hot sauce is Dave's Insanity Sauce, which I ate on a little cracker once, and then my head hurt, and I had to go lie down, and then I was crying for a day or so. Dave's is actually on the milder end of the ultra-hot hot sauce spectrum. There is an entire category, for example, of ultra-hot hot sauces that promises death. Most of these sauces are packaged in little coffins. Some go so far as to promise not only your death, but the obliteration of the earth. Uh, I am not a person who fears death, but I could not bring myself to endorse death by ultra-hotness, which is perhaps why my magazine found my piece, quote, overly gay, unquote. The second article of mine that was never published was about the food court at the Mall of America. I was excited to visit the nation's largest mall, but what I discovered there shocked me. It also apparently shocked my magazine, which refused to publish it, on the explanation that, quote, most of it was made up, end quote, and that, quote, it did not involve any polar bears or polar bear combat, end quote, which I knew was their nice way of saying overly gay. But you, dear listener, are seeking complete world knowledge, and so you will not shy from what is revealed in this, my unexpurgated private diary of the secrets of the Mall of America. Thank you, Jonathan. Day one. At 200 million square feet, the Mall of America is the largest mall in the United States. In addition to 520 shops, two-thirds of which are devoted to the sale of FDNY and NYPD baseball caps. It has a chapel and a school and a post office and an amusement park inside of it. It is not, I should point out, the largest mall in North America. That distinction belongs to the West Edmonton Mall, which contains 7,000 baseball cap shops, a sausage factory, a complete medieval castle, 12 monorails, and the entire township of East Edmonton, preserved like Pompeii at the exact moment it was devoured by the West Edmonton Mall. Still, the Mall of America is large, large enough that I can see it from my hotel room literally hundreds of feet away. Its phosphor lights obliterate the Minnesota evening. It is so bright, I don't know how they get the giant bats to keep circling it. Day two. The Mall of America is filled with elderly people who are always walking, circling the mall like sharks, they say, for exercise. When they collapse, mall security discreetly removes them and props them up in the booths at Johnny Rockets. One elderly woman has agreed to show me her favorite places to eat. Her name is Elaine. She takes me into the Odyssey Cafe. It is a restaurant with four dining rooms, each decorated in the style of a lost civilization. I am not very impressed by the Atlantis room, I have to say. It is just a blue room with pictures of fish on the wall, not a single porthole, which to me just seems obvious. But the Machu Picchu room is stunning, with beautiful murals of mountaintops and very thin air, which makes it hard to breathe, and all the hard-boiled eggs are undercooked. Also, the room is staffed by actual Incas, looking sad and doing their sad little math with knots of string when they are not serving you omelets. Elaine says this is all that remains of their once great civilization. Day 3. The Minnesota Picnic is a stand run by three brothers, all of them Egyptian. They serve traditional favorites of the Minnesota State Fair, pike on a stick, corn dogs on a stick, fried cheese curd, and bamia matbuka, the famous Egyptian okra stew, which unfortunately cannot be put on a stick. The brothers implore me to try their new invention, deep-fried cheesecake on a stick, a stunning breakthrough in food-on-a-stick technology. Then they admit they are sad, sad like the Incas are sad. After ten years, the mall is kicking them out, and they don't know why. I ask if maybe they feel they're being discriminated against because they are Egyptian. Oh, no, they say. Oh, oh, no, 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 no.
Day 4. I call the mall's PR people to ask why they are exiling the Egyptians, and also to ask about the secret tunnel I found that leads from the amusement park to Pottery Barn and is lined with human skulls. This is when the Mall of America stops returning my calls. It happens sometimes when professional journalists ask the wrong questions. I'm frozen out. From here on in, I'm going rogue. Day 5. Elaine takes me to Serial Adventure, which is a mini-theme park run by General Mills, makers of Tricks and Lucky Charms and Cookie Crisp. There is a mini-golf course there, as well as an interactive exhibit on how Lucky Charms is made. Here it is shown how the leprechauns are first flayed and then pulped to be turned into the marshmallows. Off to the side are waist-high piles of abandoned little green hats that will be shipped back to Ireland under special treaty. Am I the only one who finds this a little creepy? I ask aloud. Elaine ignores me. You can have your picture taken and put on a box of Wheaties, she says. That's insane, I say. I can't masturbate to a picture of myself. Where are the Mary Lou Retton boxes? We then go to the Cereal Adventure Cafe, which claims to have all the General Mills cereals for sale. They have the monster cereals, Booberry, Count Chocula, Frankenberry, but I am surprised to learn that they have never even heard of Fruit Brute, which featured a werewolf. They have never even heard of Yummy Mummy, who was a mummy, who was fruit-flavored. And I wonder, do they really have any business running a cereal adventure cafe at all? Day 6. My last interview is with a Minnesota woman who has just opened a pastry shop using her grandmother's original cheesecake recipe. The store is called Granny's Squeeze Cakes. I ask her if she's tried the deep-fried cheesecake on a stick that the Egyptians serve at the Minnesota picnic. She just smiles in an ominous way that makes me think she knows that their days are numbered, and soon she will be the cheesecake queen. Day 7. My three-day journey is complete. I check in with one of the Egyptian brothers on my way out of the Mall of America. Did you ever discover why they are kicking us out, he asks. No, I say. The mall officials are stonewalling me. I have gone rogue, I explain. He nods, as only a sad Egyptian about to lose his deep-fried palace at the Mall of America can nod. Perhaps it's for the best, he says. He gives me something fried on a stick, and I promise to eat it someday. But for him and for me, the Minnesota picnic is over. That was so wistful. It was so wistful. That was Jonathan Hodgman with a selection from the areas of my expertise, an almanac of complete world knowledge, written by Jonathan Hodgman. Is he? I thought he was John, J-O-H-N. Oh. He is referred to... Well, actually, I have the uh, I have his second book up here, which I'll talk about momentarily, and he is he is listed as John Hodgman. J-O-H-N. Oh, okay. Yes. But he is also Jonathan Hodgman, because that's a longer name. It is. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the longer version of the name John, is, is what I'm saying. But my, um... With my AJ? dad is named Nick, but not Nicholas. Really? Yeah, really. That is, that is crazy. I know. I'm sorry. I I didn't want to upset you or get you riled up, David. Listeners, this is Kaywer <laughs> Theater of the Air on St. Louis Radio. <laughs> it's okay. Settle down, David. And I, and David, I, David, I remembered. I remembered David the guy Bernal you were Brumman trying to. I remember outrage. I remember the guy you were trying to think of. His name's Jim Kramer. What, Ma- mad what money. The, the the money Jim guy. Cra- right. Last. Ah! You guys, there is an impending financial crisis. Right. We're all going to explode, and, and there's going to be fire and death and... Um, maggots. And maggots. Oh. But he's angrier than that. So, yeah, this is this is K-Wer Theater of the Air here on 90.3 FM Clayton. Uh, and you were just listening before I couldn't handle it anymore. The truth? 
the truth. You were listening to John Hodgman uh, with the areas of my expertise, his book. And he does, in fact, have another book coming out on October 21st. So keep on the lookout Soon. for more information than you require by John Hodgman. Thank uh, you, David. Presumably a more complete world knowledge. A compendium of more complete world knowledge. Right? Are we good? Good. We are totally good. Yeah. Do, do we want to have a quick uh, quick message from our advertising? Yeah, let's our hear sponsors. a word from our, our sponsors. sponsors. Yeah. Okay. We should do that. Let's, let's just go quickly. Okay. Hi there. Do you ever find ants in your home? Those pesky little critters can come up through the cracks when you're least expecting it. They'll devour all the perishables in your refrigerator and kidnap your baby taking her back to their terrible underground lair. Mommy, mommy, the ants are taking me away. Once deep within the bosom of the earth, the ants will crown your child their new queen, and your little one will be consigned to live out the rest of her days as the matriarch of a giant clan of insects. It's dark and crawly in here. I ask you, America, do you want your children raised by ants? Fire ants? Fire ants are red just like dirty, filthy communists. And communists can shrink down to the size of ants using secret Soviet technology. That's a fact. And here's another fact. There's something you can do to defend yourself against this invisible red menace. Buy Acme brand communist detectors. When you hear this sound, you know there's a communist nearby. No, you American big dogs found me. Curse your superior capitalist system! Take him away and mail him straight back to Russia, boys. And make sure to put holes in that box. Freedom holes. No! No! Acme brand communist detectors. Defending America since the dawn of time, 6,000 years ago. <laughs> I'm gonna get me one of those. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I wonder how many payments of 1995 that would be. Only six payments of 19595. 1595. <laughs> you sneak it in. You sneak yeah. it in. Nobody notices. Yeah. Right. Of course. Well, uh, well gentlemen. It appears though we are out of time. So, time to read us Here comes some credits. Ah, oh, there it is. Okay. The KWUR Theater of the Air was written and produced by David Brunel Brubman, Alex Jensen, and David Reinstrom. Computing services provided by Hugo Chavez. Fireproofing equipment by Cesar Chavez. Chili and polar bear steaks by Cesar Romero. Cinematography by George A. Romero. Legal services by George W. Bush. Special thanks to Pope Pius IX, the longest reigning pope, at 11,560 days. Wow. Set design for this week's show visualized by Cher. Costumes by the Algerian government. Lighting by your mom. Just a few reminders. The sweater vest of the week is gray with blue stripes. That's gray with blue stripes. The vampire of the week is Nosferatu. Once again, Nosferatu. And special thanks to Godzilla for saving Japan and providing us with homemade caramels. Look for Acme Brand's other fine products from their American Gulag line. Baby's First Plastic Handcuffs, Easy Waterboard and Flower Box, Constitution, the play-at-home version, some assembly required and all parts not included, void when prohibited. Watch the debate. Or watch Jew vs. Gentile. You choose. You, you can't watch the radio. You can too. Oh, you can. I mean, you can, but... You're not going to gain much. Get out of here. Get off my phone. All right. Well, this is David Brunel Brutman signing off. With the rest of us. Bye. Bye, See you next everybody. Week.